0: And welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so excited to have you join us today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Waisper Chen.
0: And this was a Damn Interesting Week.
2: So let's get started with our first link.
1: First link.
2: Link. According to Live Science, a man can change his pupil size on command, which was once thought an impossible feat. Hmm.
1: Like any man or just a man? And also women? And others?
2: (laughs) Yes, we are talking about a specific man, in particular, a 23-year-old student in Germany And we did know that some people can change their pupil size at will, but we've only known that to happen through indirect methods. For example, if you just think about the sun, you can constrict the pupils and then thinking of a dark room or mentally calculating something can also dilate them. So it's kind of like we've been able to do it as a side effect if you train your brain on something. But Hmm. no one thought it was possible to change the pupil size by directly controlling it like a muscle Hmm. until this student of psychology, interesting, at Ulm University in Germany contacted the researcher after taking one of his courses. When this young man, the student, was about 15 or 16 years old, he realized he could change the size of his pupils. Quote, I showed a friend that I can tremble with my eyeballs and he noticed that my pupils became small. But the student didn't notice he had this ability until he played computer games for long periods of time. And it was during these periods he realized that constricting the pupil feels like gripping or tensing something, whereas making it larger feels like fully releasing or relaxing the eye. At first, he would change his pupil size by focusing in front of or behind an object, but with practice, he could start doing it without objects altogether. So he told the researchers that to change his pupil size, all he has to do is concentrate on the eye itself. He doesn't have to imagine a bright or dark environment. Hmm. And through a series of tests, they found that, yes, he has this ability and they found no indication he was changing the sides of his pupils indirectly. The testing got a little weird. In one test, the researchers measured the electrical properties of the skin by applying voltage to test whether he was aroused by increased mental effort, which also might have increased his pupil size indirectly. Spoiler alert, he was not. So he was able to get his pupils dilated up to about 2.4 millimeters. And constrict them to 0.88 millimeters, which is, you know, in millimeters, a pretty wide spectrum there, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's more, even at the closest point an object can be for the eye to still see it in focus, in which the pupil is already maximally constricted, he could voluntarily constrict his pupil even more. And by doing this, he could improve his focus. He could see objects nearly two times closer to his face than he could if he wasn't controlling his pupil size. Hmm. They even used functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, to find increased activation of certain parts of the brain involved in volition or the ability to decide and do something out of free will. So in like focusing on this stupid human eye trick, He's actually kind of connected and rewired some of the neurons of his brain Just think, if he just put his mind to it even more, what he may be able to accomplish in overriding the involuntary function of his body.
0: Yeah, that's awesome that there's a part of the
2: brain dedicated to free will. That's cool. (laughs) Right? At least how we've defined it at this point in our human civilization.
1: Right. I've totally been trying to constrict and expand my pupils this entire time. I don't know if it's working because I'm not looking at a mirror, (laughs) but it does feel funny.
0: You know what this means? If he ever gets pulled over and like he's taken drugs and he doesn't want to look like he's taken drugs, I wonder if he can like overcome that super dilated look
2: and pass. All you got to do is say, give me a moment. I will prove to you with my eyeballs that I am not <laughs> right? in fact high. That's like, true. Oh, okay, you're talking crazy talk. Let's go downtown, buddy. That's right. Now you're just going to
0: a different kind of hospital.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Next link.
1: Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from popularmechanics.com, and it's titled The Amazing True Story of How the Microwave Was Invented by Accident. Mm Oh! So we all know microwaves. There's a microwave in 90% of American homes, and they're heating everything from popcorn to pork rinds in a hurry. And the true story is that it was invented utterly by accident one fateful day more than 70 years ago when a Raytheon engineer named Percy Spencer was testing a military-grade magnetron and suddenly realized his snack had melted.
2: (laughs) What was the snack? Ice. Just ice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think they mention it. But uh, growing up poor around the turn of the century in the wilderness of Howland, Maine, Spencer had little formal schooling, and unlike the millions of modern Americans who now heat up their lunches in his invention, often had to hunt for his food. Modern conveniences like the automobile and electricity were unfamiliar to him at a young age, but he got into engineering anyway, thanks in large part to a natural curiosity that drew Spencer to the mills that populated the region. At 12, he got a job at the spool mill one town over. At 14, Spencer got hired to install electricity at the nearby paper mill. A few years later, he was so inspired by the heroic actions of the Titanic's radio operators that he joined the Navy and learned the new technology. Spencer would later explain, I just got a hold of a lot of textbooks and taught myself while I was standing watch at night. After World War I, Spencer landed a job at the newly established American Appliance Company, co-founded by engineer Vannevar Bush, who today is most known for organizing the Manhattan Project and predicting many of the innovations that led to the computer revolution and the internet. Hmm. In 1925, the company changed its name to Raytheon Manufacturing Company, and it's still around today making missiles, military training systems, and electronic warfare products. In the 20s, Spencer became one of Raytheon's most valued and well-known engineers. For example, he helped to develop proximity fuses or detonators that allowed you to trigger artillery shells so they'd explode in midair prior to hitting their mark. Current Raytheon engineer and part-time company historian Chet Michalak says Spencer had a knack for finding simple solutions to manufacturing problems. Spencer earned several patents while working on more efficient and effective ways to mass-produce radar magnetrons. A radar magnetron is a sort of electric whistle that, instead of creating vibrating sound, creates vibrating electromagnetic waves. On that fateful day in 1946, Spencer was testing one of his magnetrons when he stuck his hand in his pocket, preparing for the lunch break when he made a shocking discovery. The peanut cluster bar, so that's why it was, had melted.
0: Ooh, it had to have been a payday.
1: Oh, yeah. It could be, yeah.
0: But, it I mean obviously he was correct the microwaves had melted it but it was in his pocket like why did he not think the body heat you can't put a candy bar in your pocket it'll melt
2: yes but a payday is covered with peanuts it offers some temperature resistance against the pocket (laughs) come on guys armor that's right not armor okay I'm done (laughs)
1: okay but was payday around in 1946 that's my question oh we are gonna have to look that one up all right anyways so a story this good can't help but change as it's passed down over the years Some tellings of the legend say it was a melted chocolate bar that led to Spencer's Eureka. So our debate is not out of the question. No,
2: and I will say Wikipedia is reporting that Payday was first introduced in 1932. Oh, so they did exist. Yeah, so it
1: may well have been a Payday. (laughs) But if you ask Rod Spencer about the chocolate today, he'll tell you that is dead wrong. The younger Spencer says of his grandfather, he loved nature due to his childhood in Maine, especially his little friends, the squirrels and the chipmunks. So he would always carry a peanut cluster bar in his pocket to break up and feed them during lunch. Chocolate melts at a much lower temperature, about 80 degrees Fahrenheit, which means Mm. melting a peanut cluster bar with microwaves was much more remarkable. Good to know. That
0: means I yeah. can put a payday in my pocket. I'm, I'm going out into the world armed with this knowledge now.
1: <laughs> so understandably curious just what the heck had happened. Spencer ran another test with a magnetron. This time he put an egg underneath the tube. Moments later, it exploded, covering his face in egg.
2: Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs>
1: yeah. Rod Spencer Jr. says with a laugh, I always thought that this was the origin of the expression egg in your face. hmm <laughs> The following day, Percy Spencer brought in corn kernels, popped them with his new invention, and shared some popcorn with the entire office. The microwave oven was born. Mm -hmm. And at this point, you might be wondering, how did Spencer know cooking with microwaves was safe? And according to his grandson, he didn't. Yeah,
2: (laughs) (laughs) that's fine. Yeah, Yeah, everything from what he interacted with told him this was probably a little dangerous, if anything, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Today, we know that the low doses of electromagnetic radiation emitted by microwaves are generally considered safe. Although the FDA admits that no studies have been done to assess the impact of low levels of microwaves on humans over time, and there are those who still firmly believe microwaves are killing us. Mm -hmm. So you know. Maybe. Uh, But back in the 1940s, this information just wasn't available at all. This was a time when people would wear nuclear stuff around their neck to get rid of cancer.
0: (laughs) Right, right, right. So, I will say I had a friend in college who had a brain tumor and he got it treated and he's fine. But he told us as he was going through this process that after he had done the radiation, his doctor had said, don't be around microwaves for a while.
2: Like okay. you, you've had a certain amount
0: of radiation. You don't want to add anymore, so just stay away from microwaves. And we were always like, that doesn't doesn't sound right. Like, <laughs> if, if the amount Mm-mm. of radiation coming out leaking out of a microwave is that dangerous, what are we all doing around them? Mm-hmm. But he was like, I don't know. This is what he told me. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, Wi-Fi routers do emit radiation up till something like four inches away from them. Hmm. So I've seen video time lapses of if you try and grow plants underneath a, a router that's on versus off, and it's yeah. close enough, those plants will not grow. It, they're just completely irradiated. Huh. So if you have one by your foot, like I do, right. you might want to move it a little <laughs> bit further away.
0: And have you done that yet? Because it doesn't uh, sound like you have.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'd call this about seven inches. It's fine. <laughs> In 1947, just a year after Spencer's snack food serendipity, the first commercial microwave oven hit the market. Called the Rada Range, really hit it on the nose there, (laughs) it (laughs) weighed nearly 750 pounds Mm -hmm. and cost more than $2,000. So, needless to say, it wasn't a big seller. The Mm -hmm. first domestic microwave was introduced in 1955, but it too failed to launch because it was expensive It wasn't until 1967, two decades after its invention, that the microwave oven finally caught on in American homes in the form of Amana's compact radar range. By 1975, a million microwaves were sold every year.
2: Wow! Today,
1: Rod Spencer Jr. is a project manager and engineer himself. He's writing a book about his grandfather. He says, thankfully, he liked feeding the squirrels.
0: (laughs) Right, because if he hadn't had the nuts in his pocket, he wouldn't have figured it out. Yeah.
1: And I mean, honestly, who knows? Like, he might have died because he would right. have just continually <laughs> been exposed to the radiation. Because, like, I'm assuming he was testing without any sort of enclosure space that would limit right. it. You know? Sure, he it would hit, have
0: to be. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It hit his pants, hit, like his entire body, like. <laughs> ugh.
0: Have you guys ever seen one of those old Amana radar range microwaves? No, oh. I've
2: never even heard of it.
0: Oh, yeah. We had one growing up, and it what? was it was a beast this thing because my dad was of the like the old school like they don't make them like they used to Mm -hmm. you know you buy one thing and you spend a lot of money and then it lasts you we had one growing up and it lasted all the way until i moved out (gasps) and then at some point my dad was like well this is just taking up too much counter space because it was massive so he was Mm -hmm. like you take it and i kept it for like (gasps) another five or ten years after that but it was like it wasn't even digital it had dials so like you had to turn to like one minute two minute like it was really sturdy that's epic and it weighed so much it was so heavy like (laughs) when i finally got
2: rid of it it was because i was moving and i was like i'm not moving this thing again it's done
1: (laughs) that's incredible i know
2: like i kind of wish you hadn't got rid of it did did it go to a good home like a museum for like Mm -hmm. historic appliances or something if The dumpster is a museum. No, (laughs) I was young. I didn't have any
0: appreciation for cultural artifacts. You know, super fair.
2: (laughs) And I gotta throw this in just because I still have that payday Wikipedia article up on my computer. But apparently, it was first introduced in 1932 and got its name because it was produced on payday at the company and get this it was marketed during the great depression as a meal replacement because of its wow. dense peanut outer layer wow that's uh, i mean yeah. you that's know. depressing now
1: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, you know, there's a substance called, I think it's nutty butter, and I think it's manufactured by a French company, and it's used for relief aid in places that Mm -hmm. have chronic hunger problems because the peanut is like a protein nutritional powerhouse, so I totally get it. Sure. No,
0: I'm sure it worked really well. I'm just like, now every time I eat one, I'm going to be like, oh. This saved someone's
2: yeah. life. <laughs> <No>.
1: <laughs> well,
2: then you can do so with honor. Enjoy a That's right today not sponsored. That's right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link.
0: link. All right. Well, here's a question for you guys to ponder. If you were going to make a cemetery for satellites, where would you put it?
1: Further away, I guess.
2: Ooh, you know, that's a good question because my instinct is, like, put it in space because we don't have enough, like, you know, bury it or, and you probably
1: shouldn't burn it. I mean, just pick a big asteroid and just be done with it. You know? right. right. Just shoot it that way. <laughs> the American way. Well, yeah.
0: the correct answer, according to this article from The Guardian, is at the bottom of the ocean. Specifically, Ugh. there's a spot in the Pacific Ocean that is officially named the Ocean Point of Inaccessibility because it is the farthest place on Earth that you can get from land. It's about 2,700 kilometers from the nearest shoreline in any direction and a whopping four kilometers deep. Unofficially, it's known as Point Nemo, which the article helpfully points out is named after Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and not the fish looking for his dad. (laughs) Uh,
2: Okay. Yeah. I love how that point of clarification needed to come in here because we're at that cultural reference point where it's like. They're like, no one's heard of this book,
0: but we feel the need to tell you. Yeah. Oh,
2: I feel so (laughs) old. That's great. And the article isn't
0: really clear about whether there's a formal agreement between countries on this or everyone just kind of came to the same conclusion that this was the best spot. But nearly every satellite from every country eventually ends up here once it's reached the end of its useful life. A representative from the European Space Agency said they do careful computer modeling to figure out where the defunct satellite should hit the atmosphere and at what angle in order to come down exactly right and hit the target without posing a danger to anyone.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Because, of course, there are more dangerous ways to dispose of a satellite if you want to, including just leaving it up there and letting it break apart. But we've talked before on this podcast many times about the growing problem of space junk.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: The article also briefly discusses the Kessler effect, which is a theoretical point in the future when we'll reach a sort of critical mass up there. And collisions will cascade rapidly into more collisions and create a dense debris field of sand-sized particles that can't be navigated by anyone. So it Mm -hmm. is in everyone's best interest to not have that happen. (sighs) There have also been a few recent cases of unplanned trajectories, including the Skylab Space Station, which hit Western Australia in 2020, or China's Long March 5B rocket in May of this year, which landed somewhere over the Arabian Peninsula. And obviously it's not great when a space agency decides to do that. So more and more people are settling on Point Nemo as the place where dead space equipment goes, in part because it's such a big area that you can miss your target by a couple thousand kilometers and still not hurt anybody.
2: (laughs) Unless you think, you know, that this is how kaiju come about. Let's find the lowest point of the ocean, dump all of our tech that doesn't work for us anymore. Mm-hmm. And let's see what happens. You know, yeah. what, could, what could possibly go wrong?
0: Someday the octopuses will rise out with their metal armor and
2: get <laughs> <hit> us all. <laughs> and, and they will be justified, okay?
0: Probably, yeah. <laughs> Some of the more famous equipment at Point Nemo includes the Mir Space Station, which was decommissioned in 2001, an automated transfer vehicle known, ironically, as the Jules Verne, And someday soon, the International Space Station, which is already eight years past its expected lifespan and has been in the news recently for some minor failures that indicate the end is near. Mm. It's currently authorized for use until 2024, but actually just this week there were reports of some structural cracks that may mean we leave sooner than that. But the ISS is especially interesting because it will be the largest thing we've ever pulled out of orbit about the size of a football field, which is way bigger than I thought it was. They'll have to decommission it in sections, and just breaking it into pieces that can hit Point Nemo one at a time may create some debris. But space archaeologist Alice Gorman from Flinders University assures us that plans are already being made to the best of our ability. She says, the good news is that all of the volatile propellants and other chemicals will burn up on re-entry, so what lands at the bottom of the ocean is only clean materials like stainless steel, titanium alloys, and ceramics. And to your point, Angie, if they've survived the vacuum of space and the fire of reentry, they can survive the pressure of 4,000 kilometers of seawater. So she Mm -hmm. says it's safe to assume that everything we've put down there is still very much there. That's how it happens, (laughs) y'all. Gorman says, like shipwrecks the world over, it becomes a habitat, a coral reef. But I honestly think she may be speaking more generally about rocket debris in the ocean because to my knowledge, there are no coral that deep in the ocean. A couple million years, a little continental shifting, and someone in the future is going to find some very interesting fossils.
1: Whenever I hear stories like this, I just think about the George Carlin bit where he's talking about how the true purpose of human beings may just be to produce plastic for the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Because like, I don't know, just let's put a bunch of metals down there. And like, I know steel and titanium are very sturdy and reliable, but like all that stuff still leaches into the water. Yeah, eventually, eventually, for sure. Yeah. And if we keep doing it, I don't
2: know. We already know that there are shrimp that can thrive near like volcanic thermal vents deep, mm -hmm. deep underwater. I mean, y'all are joking about my kaiju thing. And granted, that's a bit of a joke. But (laughs) but we're we're radically altering the environment in a way that we don't still fully understand. I mean, Mm -hmm. just saying.
0: Yeah. Well, that's always the uh, thing to point out is like, yeah, we're not really destroying the planet. We're changing the planet to the point that we won't be able to live here.
2: That's but right. life's going to
0: keep going on. It just won't include us. <laughs>
2: yeah. And in unpredictable ways, we can't even begin to speculate upon. So enjoy, kiddos. Yeah. I hope the shrimp like their, their titanium. We've gone and made <laughs> these great alloys for them. They should be grateful. That's right. Get ready for mecha shrimp. They're a little difficult <laughs> to eat. But if you boil them long enough. <laughs> Next link. Next link! link. All right, we are at a point in our civilization where synthetic biology can enable microbes to build muscle. Okay, I mean, we made (laughs) eyeballs, so I guess muscle is less gross than eyeballs. It is, and the application of this is a little more limited in scope, which I can appreciate when it comes to science. Uh, This Mm -hmm. is from fizz.org, and it starts by asking some pretty interesting questions. Would you wear clothing made of muscle fibers? Hmm. Uh, uh, I okay, mean, probably. About- like, I,
0: I say I wouldn't, but if it was cute <laughs> and it was on sale, I would.
2: Like, there you go. There you go. Okay, well, what about using muscle fibers to tie your shoes or maybe even wear as a belt?
1: Does it feel like a warm embrace? That's my question. <laughs>
2: You know, that is something I would love to use as metric to buy all of my clothing from now on. But (laughs) if, if the fibers made of muscle fibers could endure more energy before breaking than cotton, silk, nylon, or even Kevlar, Mm. That kind of puts it in a different context, right? And better yet, we can produce this muscle fiber without harming a single animal. Well, that's nice. Right? I mean, this is
0: like the clothing they had in Back to the Future too. He had a jacket and it was like adjusting and it changed size to fit him. So if that's what's happening, it's like constricting to to fit us all really
2: nicely. That was the first thing I thought of. The application's a little different, although I'd like to think that's not far off. Researchers at the McKelvey School of Engineering at Washington University in St. Louis have Developed a synthetic chemistry approach to polymerize proteins inside of engineered microbes. And this enables microbes to produce high molecular weight muscle protein, which is known as titan, which was then spun into fibers. The production is cheap and scalable. It can enable a lot of applications that people have previously thought about, but with natural muscle fibers. And now we can do this without the need for actual animal tissues. So, titan is one of the three major protein components of muscle tissue. Critical to its mechanical properties is the large molecular size of Titan. It's the largest known protein in nature. So what they did is they engineered bacteria to piece together smaller segments of the protein into ultra-high molecular weight polymers around two mega daltons in size, which is about 50 times the size of an actual bacterial protein. Then they used a wet spinning process to convert the proteins into fibers that were around 10 microns in diameter or a tenth the thickness of human hair. Hmm. So obviously fancy clothes or protective armor because these fibers are again, tougher than Kevlar which is the material used in bulletproof vests and also jeans for motorcycle riders. Hmm. But they're also looking at potential biomedical applications as well because this synthetic material is presumably biocompatible and could therefore be a great material for sutures or even tissue engineering. Hmm. So this is early days, but pretty promising, and I'd really like to think that those auto-adjust back-to-the-future jackets and sneakers are not far off.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially, I imagine it would probably look like leather. Like, it's not going to look like one of those, the, the real bodies exhibits where it's like just muscle fibers <laughs> sticking out looking creepy. <laughs> right, right.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I know this isn't how it works, but...
0: <laughs> but it should be. Well, he... <laughs>
1: I mean, I'm glad it doesn't work this way because muscle fiber, real muscle fiber, gets stronger when it breaks down. That's Mm -hmm. how muscles grow. You know, you work out really hard, stress them out, and then they heal stronger. So I'm imagining a shirt that when you wear it and if you, like, fall down, it begins to constrict you Mm -hmm. (laughs) because all the fibers are getting (laughs) tighter. Well,
2: what about instead of constricting, it just gets stronger? So, like, the more you wear a jacket... It or gets a more shirt? Bumpy. Well, not it bumpy. It just gets layered. It just gets tougher. Like if you have like a little hole in it, maybe you just kind of like rub on that hole a little more, and it scabs uh, up. Okay, uh, never mind. okay.
1: It, I was gonna say this whole process sounds pretty gross. And uh... <laughs>
2: all right, well, muscle shirts may not be for way, at least in this form. But, um, That's all right. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link.
1: This article comes to us from BBC.com. and It's titled, Many People Around the World Learn to Count on Their Fingers, But We Don't All Do It the Same Way. Could There Be a Better Method? It's a question title. Oh. So... How would you count to 10 on your fingers? Do you start with the thumb or the index finger?
2: I'm American, so I start with the index finger. Yeah, the index finger.
1: I start with my thumb. That's interesting. Really? Yeah. And then there's also, you know, left hand or right. Mm -hmm. And so dactylonomy, or counting on your hands, seems like such a simple and natural thing to do that you might assume it's the same nearly everywhere. After all, it's no coincidence that we have 10 digits on our hands, and the most common number systems have 10 digits as well. This way of counting, called a base 10 system, probably arose because we have those 10 fingers. Mm -hmm. And if we had evolved with 8 or 12 fingers, our number system might be quite different. But it turns out that people around the world have vastly different techniques for keeping track of numbers on their hands. For example, if you're from the UK or many parts of Europe, you probably start counting with the thumb and finish with the pinky. While in the US, they start counting with the index finger, ending with a thumb. Today I learned I'm weird. Uh, (laughs) In... (laughs) In parts of the Middle East, like Iran, they begin with the pinky, whereas in Japan, they start with the fingers extended in an open palm, drawing them in to make a closed fist. Hmm. However, this cultural diversity in finger counting hasn't always been appreciated. Andrea Bender, a professor of cognition, culture, and language at the University of Bergen, Norway, says, In the past, researchers have believed that finger counting, and especially the way that we do it in the West, is essential for children when they start to learn counting and when they try to grasp what numbers actually are. One reason for casting doubt on that is that there is so much cultural diversity in how fingers or body parts are used for counting. Mm -hmm. For example, in India, they use the lines between the segments of the fingers to count. This means each digit can represent four numbers, and the whole hand can represent 20. While in parts of Eastern Africa, like Tanzania, among speakers of some Bantu languages, they use both hands in a symmetric way as much as possible. The number 6, for example, is shown with the index, middle, and ring finger of both hands. Hmm. There's also the indigenous northern Pame people of Mexico, who count on their knuckles, and the now-extinct Yuki language in California, which use the spaces in between the fingers. Hmm. However, some cultures don't use quantities of fingers to represent numbers at all. They use symbols. In China, they count from 1 to 5 in the same way as the U.S., but 6 to 10 are represented symbolically. 6 is shown by extending the thumb and pinky, while 10 is either a closed fist or crossing the index and middle fingers. Hmm. And the ancient Romans used a clever but difficult-to-master symbolic system that allowed them to count into the thousands.
2: That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's really interesting that they didn't mention American sign language because they have a strange way of doing it. And I, I was realizing as I was like counting on my fingers here going, how do I do it? I do it about 50-50, just the, what I think is the normal American way of just finger, 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 thumb. But huh. about half the time I do it in the American sign language way because I used to like I had a bunch of friends who were deaf and it was a whole thing. Like we, I learned a little sign language. And the way wow. they do it is pointer finger, middle finger thumb for number three then the thumb comes mm. back in and you do the four fingers for four and then it comes back out for five what and the, the oh. reason they do that is because three fingers extended is the letter w oh. so you can't have it also mean three so three is the first two fingers in the thumb but for whatever reason they're like but just that one We don't use the thumb for the rest of counting. We just,
1: (laughs) we stick it out and then we
0: pull it back in. And then they also have a whole one-handed way of doing six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. And when I go above five, I do the sign language for sure on one hand. I never use two hands.
2: How interesting.
1: Yeah and it reminds me of stories that my mother would tell me about people she knew that could do like complex mathematical calculations on their fingers Mm -hmm. like there's an entire system you can learn that will let you do like multiplication and division just on your fingers which is pretty fascinating well I'm sure
0: that's how the Romans ended up with the system that went to thousands because they didn't have calculators they're out there doing business Mm -hmm. in the market and you've got to be able to do fairly high calculations of prices and stuff if you're Mm -hmm. really doing this for a living I guess
1: the innovations we've come up with just for for using these systems in absence of paper. Mm -hmm.
0: And now it's all lost because we all just have little calculators in our pocket and we never do any math in our head. And I admit, I'm a a victim of that. I never do any math in my head anymore and I'm sure I'm dumber for it, but I I just don't. I pull out my little calculator and I'm done. Yeah, I mean, Same. same. That's all right. The Romans can have one thing better than us. That's fine.
1: (laughs) We have toilets, (laughs) so, you know.
2: And who knows, maybe the abacus comes back into fashion. I mean, like we may get to a point where preppers are like, listen, it's time for the abacus to come back, y'all.
0: Yeah, yeah. Post-apocalyptic times, we're gonna need these skills, for sure. Right, right? It's true, it's true. (laughs) When the mecha shrimp come.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link.
0: All right, this next article is from a man named Giancarlo Zigante, and it's called, I Found the Largest Truffle in the World. Oh, Hmm. yeah. And if we're being totally accurate, it should say, I found the largest truffle in the world at the time, because we're talking Uh. about something that happened in 1999, and the record has since been broken. But I get Mm -hmm. it. You know, he's looking for clicks, and I don't begrudge him that, especially because (laughs) the story of how he found this massive truffle is pretty noteworthy. Okay. So, you know, of course, the one detail he will never share is exactly where he found it, because Mm -hmm. that's a professional secret. And Zigante is still a truffle hunter in the area. But Mm -hmm. he says his general hunting grounds are in the Motovun Forest in Istria, which is in the northwest region of Croatia. Mm -hmm. He started truffle hunting as a young man in the 1980s, purely as a hobby to supplement his income as a toolmaker for the medical industry. So basically, Whoa. it was scalpels by day, shrooms by night, because <laughs> night is, he explains, the best time to look for truffles. Oh. This is for two reasons. One, the moisture of the night air helps intensify the smell of the truffles for his trained Ooh. dog to find. And two, it's harder for other people to follow you. Ooh. Speaking of his dog, in those days, it was a German pointer named Diana. And he says on that fateful night in November 1999, he had a gut feeling that it would be a good one. There are four types of truffle that grow in Istria, and the rarest is a white truffle, instead of the more common black species, called Tuber Magnetum pico. He says Diana found a few small truffles right off the bat that night, so he felt like his hunch was right, and he kept going for several more hours until Diana indicated a new spot. It was about 20 centimeters or 8 inches beneath the surface, and it took him a solid 15 minutes to dig up. He said it was about three times bigger than the biggest truffle he'd ever found, and he immediately stopped for the night and took it home so he wouldn't damage it. It weighed 1,310 grams, or nearly three pounds, Whoa! and as soon as morning came, he called the Guinness World Record folks and confirmed that it was the largest one ever found, worth about one million euros. Holy Holy smokes. Yeah. But here's the twist. He didn't sell it. He ate it. What? (laughs) (laughs) What a baller. Yeah. He said, quote, it's great to be rich, but I felt the truffle could have more impact if it was shared. The truffle was found in Istria and should be consumed here, not sold to a rich person abroad. So he invited 200 of his closest friends, plus a few prominent people like the president of Croatia.
2: And together they had a giant feast with the truffle featured in every dish. That's
1: amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I love that.
2: What a memorable event for everybody. I'm sorry, I I am obsessed with truffles. And if there were like a full course, largest truffle ever found at that time meal, like, I would remember that meal forever.
0: Oh, for sure. And that was kind of his hope. He said his family was supportive of his decision. And the publicity around the event put Istrian white truffles on the gastronomic map. Nice. Three years later, he decided to open his own restaurant, which is still operating today, and has a bronze replica of the truffle on display. (laughs) Selfie time. Yes. He says it's a great conversation starter because even in Istria, where people generally know all about truffles, they think it must be a statue of a brain because they can't imagine a truffle could be that big. (laughs) He also apparently had a model of it made out of white plastic or something similar because he's shown holding that one in the article. So he <laughs> planned ahead before he chopped it up. He was like, we need to commemorate this, make yeah. it, you know,
2: super. <laughs> I mean, he turned it into a full lifelong campaign, not only for him, but for the location itself, the region. That's mm-hmm. massive.
0: Yeah. So Zigante's record was eventually broken in 2014 when a truffle was found in the United States weighing 1,786 grams or four pounds. But he wants to remind everyone that that one was sold to the highest bidder. So for that reason, I believe mine is still the most famous. (laughs) Uh, You know what? It's
2: hard to argue with that. Yeah, Yeah.
0: absolutely. And he seems like a really nice guy. You know, if you had a million dollars worth of truffle, like there's I, I agree there's a temptation to like eat some of it yourself for sure. <laughs> but to invite 200 people and nobody paid. He was like, this whole meal is on me. Never mind oh the gosh. truffle part of it. Like I'm going to feed 200 people. That's a, an expensive party.
2: Mm-hmm. But he so, made you know. himself a legend. Like, Yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> so cool. And he'll never have to make medical equipment again because he's made a perfectly good living collecting truffles, (laughs) apparently. Gosh,
2: finally, a way to get out of that super lucrative and extremely helpful human (laughs) profession. (laughs) Woo, what a relief. (laughs) Next link.
1: Next Next link.
2: link. All right, well, animals and food, and we're just going to stay on this theme here because the Guardian got a really adorable article about how wild cockatoos have been observed using tools as cutlery to extract seeds from tropical fruit. Aww. Nice.
1: I mean, I'm
0: sure they're just, like, putting a stick in their beak, but I'm picturing them with, like, a little fork and a knife in their wing yeah, <laughs> <same.
2: laughs> You know what? You are correct on both counts. <laughs> um, we're talking about the Goffin's cockatoos on Indonesia's Tanimbar Islands, and scientists have observed them crafting three different types of tools from tree branches to obtain seeds from something called sea mangoes, which don't look really appetizing on Hmm. the video that they have included. And they do have videos, so definitely try to watch it. But apparently they're really good and good enough for birds to want to figure out how to use types of tools as cutlery to extract the seeds. Mm -hmm. So the Goffin's Cockatoo is also known as the Blushing Cockatoo because it's got these sweet little kind of peach blush pieces right by its nose. And the researchers have been studying these Goffin's cockatoos since 2015, observing wild caught birds in a field aviary before releasing them back into the forest. And they said these cockatoos showed a high level of dexterity in manufacturing and using what they're calling the cutlery. It turns out within the flock of only 15 birds, only two individuals were doing this kind of behavior. And after observing the behavior repeatedly and collecting some of the cutlery used by the birds, they classified the tools into three types. So They used sturdy, thick twigs to wedge open a fruit and allow access into the inner portion. They also used fine tools to pierce the layer surrounding a seed like a knife. And they used medium-sized tools to spoon out the inner seed matter. So they made the fine and medium tools Mm. by splitting slim wooden fragments from branches. What a nice way to say twigs. While the sturdy (laughs) tools were made by severing a branch entirely and removing a portion of the branch stump. So they then sculpted and finessed the tools using their beaks. And on average, the birds used about eight tools per piece of fruit. Hmm. Unlike in other birds like New Caledonian crows that have also been observed using tools, the behavior does not appear to be genetically inherited as it is not species-wide. Because remember, there were 15 Hmm. of them and only two of them were doing this. So only a few individuals were using the tools, which is an indication that it likely developed individually as an innovation. Not only that, these particular birds are smaller than other cockatoos, so the smaller bird might have a smaller beak, so they just can't bite open the fruit and might need some extra tricks. So if you're smaller and a little disadvantaged, maybe you got the smarts to make a tool or two. Mm -hmm. They do know that social learning is present in other cockatoo species, but they're planning to investigate how prevalent the behavior is among goffins' cockatoos and how it may have spread socially throughout groups of birds.
0: Well it's like that whole you know you're standing on the shoulders of giants they're using mm-hmm. they're they're sharing knowledge from generation to generation Absolutely. which is scary but awesome i mean good for them <laughs> and, like
1: <laughs> and in some situations they're literally using the tools of giants
2: right? <laughs> exactly yeah I, I don't think it's scary i mean we we know that we do this and there's a lot of you know nature versus nurture kind of thing, so it's kind of nice to have- I
1: mean, I get Jen's point. Like, imagine the birds with forks.
2: Right. I'm, (laughs) I'm not worried about them now. I'm saying
0: this is an indication of their increasing technical ability and at some point, they're going to know how to open doors. They're going to go back to being I mean, velociraptors.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like hawks with knives. Do oh, I need yeah, to say more? Yeah. <laughs> Listen, Don't ah that. That's horrible. Okay. All right. You, you make
2: a good point. The larger birds are worth a little bit of consternation. But I'm big into hummingbirds. That's been my big pandemic thing. Bald eagle with a
1: great sword. I, I mean, I, come
2: I, on. I would like to be able to train a small group of hummingbirds to do my bidding and poke the unworthy. You know what I mean? Like, sure. If- and if yeah. if
0: they're making cutlery, they're only a few steps behind being able to wash cutlery. Like, if you had one that could <gasps> load the dishwasher for you, my that might Disney be princess
2: dreams are coming true, y'all. <laughs>
0: Or Fred Flintstone, one of the two. <laughs> no, 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 I want the
2: Cinderella animal assistance, not the Flintstone uh, subservience
0: kind of situation. But, no, thank you. But they're they're cockatoos. You can train them to talk. You could make him say it's a living.
2: Like, <laughs> 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 all right, you win. You win. <laughs> it's a
0: living. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Biologists Unlock the Secrets of Invisible Animals, The Unlikely Protector Against Bangladesh's Rising Seas, and The Ugly History of Chicago's Ugly Law. So all that and more can be found at damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and like that it has no ads, which we certainly like, you can support us at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley.
1: I'm Whisper Chen.
0: And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.